I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 11, and you'll need a Bible. These brothers have some Bibles. They are going to make their way down the aisle. If you need one, then just get their attention, and they'll get you one of those Bibles that's marked for you at Ecclesiastes 11. Now, many of us think of Christianity as primarily a negative and passive way of life. It's negative in that it tells us what we're not to do, what we're to avoid, what we're to stay away from. After all, there are indeed many negative commands in the Bible. Thou shalt not. So we easily conclude that the main thing is to keep away from those things that are on the Bible's lists of prohibitions, the things that we're not supposed to do. And because we view it that way, the Christian life is not only then viewed in that negative way, what we're to avoid, but it's passive as well. Passive rather than active because it's not about what you do, but what you don't do. But that version of Christianity, that false version of Christianity, is contradicted by something clearly taught in the Bible, what many have called the replacement principle. The idea is that we don't simply stop thinking or saying or doing certain things, but we replace those with other better thoughts and words and actions. And you see this in passages like Ephesians chapter 4. Put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So how does that putting off and then putting on that replacement occur? Well, then the passage in Ephesians 4 goes on to give examples. Verse 25, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully. So it's not enough to just stop lying. You actually actively use your mouth, use your tongue, use the gift of communication for truth. And in addition to our words, this principle applies to our actions in that passage. It says, steal no longer, but work, doing something useful with your hands that you may have something to share with those who are in need. So it's not just stop taking from others, it's replacing that by giving to others. This replacement principle is inherent in the biblical concept of repentance. Many of you know that the word repent in the Bible means a change of mind. But it's a change of mind that leads to a change of life. The idea is we're going in one direction, but now we go in a new and opposite direction, replacing the old way with the new. In our series in the book of Ecclesiastes, We've seen what life looks like from the limited, time-bound perspective of under the sun. That's a phrase that's used three dozen times in the book of Ecclesiastes. But as we begin the final two chapters today, chapters 11 and 12 over the next three weeks, you'll notice that that phrase, under the sun, is not used in these two final chapters at all. That's because Solomon, who wrote Ecclesiastes, is turning from telling us how not to live to how we are to live. The replacement principle. The Bible tells us that Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. 
And so I've titled today's message, Words to Live By from the Ultimate Wise Guy, from Solomon. And we're going to ask God to help us then as we consider these sage words from chapter 11 this morning. And as we do, I have a couple of prayer requests. One is, uh, Daniel, you have a, a friend, you had a friend here who had to leave because of a family emergency, is that right? And they got that news as we were here in the service. All right. So we're going to pray for Daniel's friend and his family. He got news that his grandmother had uh, passed away. I think it's his, his first time here. Is that right, Daniel, today? Elizabeth's friend. Okay. All right. Grandfather. Okay. All right. And then Jim Pantelli, I sent you all a note late uh, last night, uh, email, that Jim Pantelli's mom is having surgery this morning in Arizona. She's having a pacemaker installed So let's ask the Lord to help us as we look at his word. Let's pray about these matters as well, okay? Our Father, we thank you that we can come to you as our Father and know that you hear, but you not only hear, but you are able and willing to act. You know all things. You're in control of all things. There is nothing that can withhold your hand from doing as you please. And so, Father, we ask you to work your will in the situations that uh, we have given a request for, for this young man and the passing of his grandfather and for their entire family, we pray that you will work your goodwill in it. And Lord, we would pray that you would use this, uh, this, this death, this passing, this mourning to focus the attention of the family, the immediate family, the extended family on you. And that you would use all the events surrounding this to focus on you and to bring some to yourself. Comfort as only you can. And Father, we pray for Tony, Jim's mom in Arizona, and the surgery that's going to be taking place this morning. That it would be successful. That she would uh, have this device that would help her to be healthy and to serve you many more days and years as she desires to do. We commit these to you. And now we commit this hour to you. And this time in your word, we thank you for allowing us this time to look into the pages of your voice to your people. Help us then to have attentive ears and open hearts so that we can be affected by it, affected in a way that makes a difference tomorrow and this week to honor you and glorify you better than we were able this past week. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We have an outline inserted for you in your program every week. So I encourage you every week when you come in, look for that. Take it out. If you don't have that out as yet, then please take a look at it so you can follow along. Where we see that Solomon, who, as I've said, the Bible calls the wisest man of all, offers counsel on how to live. Tells us four things in the six verses in Ecclesiastes 11 we're going to look at. The first is this. Invest because the return is worth it. Verse 1. Ship your grain across the sea. After many days, you may receive a return. Now, this is one of several verses in the book of Ecclesiastes that have been quoted by many. And as is often the case, the verses that are quoted are misused. Older translations of this verse say, cast your bread upon the waters and after many days you will find it. Now, that idea of casting your bread on the water and then having it returned to you has been used to mean that if we're generous with what we have, it'll be repaid to us. 
It's a metaphor for being willing to throw your livelihood away in generosity to others and how you'll be rewarded if, if indeed you do. I remember watching the Whitewater scandal during the time of the Clinton administration, watching the hearings related to that on C-SPAN. The Clintons, you may recall, were accused of financial crimes related to a land deal along a river called the White River during their days in Arkansas. One of the witnesses was an attorney who had worked with Hillary Clinton at the infamous Rose Law Firm in Little Rock. And he was trying to explain why they had no billing records for work they had done related to this shady land deal. He said, you know, sometimes we just do work for free. And the sympathetic questioner then quoted Ecclesiastes 11.1 saying, yes, sometimes you just cast your bread upon the waters and it comes amazingly back to you. Well, it is true that if you give, you'll be blessed, as the Bible teaches in a number of places. But this passage in all likelihood has the business of agriculture in the background. The Bible tells us of the Solomon who wrote Ecclesiastes in 1 Kings that Solomon had a fleet of trading ships at sea. Once every three years, the fleet returned carrying gold, silver, and ivory, and apes, and baboons. That's why the New International Version, which is what most of you have in your hand, translates this as, rather than cast your bread upon the waters, ship your grain across the sea. The idea is that one would send his grain or other produce out to sea and then wait for the ships to return with fine goods from foreign lands. Then after many days, you may receive the reward that eventually comes after taking the risk of a wise investment. A businessman or woman is willing to risk what they have for a greater potential return. Now, Solomon is not only a financial advisor, although he would have been a great one, but he's giving us a perspective that should shape the way we approach life. He's saying invest in what is most rewarding. And the reward is worth the risk. And this is how Christians have lived their lives for centuries. They've been willing to take risk even with their very lives because the return to them was worth it. So we have passages in places like Hebrews 10 that I'm going to show you on the screen in just a moment that tell tell us of people who were being persecuted for their witness for Jesus. And here was their attitude. It says, You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Just stop and ponder that. Joyfully accepting your stuff being taken. You joyfully did that. Why? Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Further in the New Testament, we find that the first followers of Jesus, the apostles, were regularly persecuted. They would be hauled before the religious leaders in Jerusalem. On one such occasion, in Acts chapter 5, after they had been flogged, that is, after they had been beaten and whipped and told not to preach in Jesus' name, here's what the Bible tells us. The apostles left the Sanhedrin. That's the ruling religious leaders. They left that body rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. It's worth it to them to take the risk. Further, they were simply following, those in Hebrews, the apostles, they were simply following 
our Lord and Master, the Lord Jesus. Hebrews 12 tells us this. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. Now, for all of these people, what they were doing and what they were sacrificing was worth it because of the eventual return. And not only the eventual future potential return, but the present return, knowing that it was a great privilege for them to be involved in the work of God. So what would you do if being a Christian cost you dearly? Now, we can sit here, stand here, in this safe place without any threat for being Christians and gathering as Christians, and we can say, yeah, I'd stand. Listen, I can tell you this. If you're not willing to give yourself when the risk is small and when there is no threat as it is today, you'll never be willing to pay a higher price in other circumstances. If churches have to beg for people to serve the Lord when it's relatively easy to do so, how will those people stand for Jesus when it's hard? So I ask you, are you actively serving Jesus? Are you actively serving Jesus in this church? And if you're not doing that when it's easy, there'll be no chance that you'll stand when it's hard. So we need to ask ourselves, what are we risking? What are we sacrificing now? And failure to do that, failure to be willing to risk it, failure to be willing to invest ourselves in it is saying this, it's not worth it. There are other things that are more worth my time and the resources that God has given me. There are better returns than I get for working for Jesus. And so the Bible tells us to invest our lives because the return is worth it. Secondly, we're told to diversify because the return is unpredictable. Diversify. Verse 2, invest in seven ventures, yes, in eight. Now, again, this is in a commercial context of not putting your eggs all in one basket. Financial advisors tell investors to create a diverse portfolio, they call it, because of what the end of verse 2 says. You do not know what disaster may come upon the land. So if you diversify, if one investment goes bad, you haven't lost everything. God expects us to use the resources he has given us, all of them, our money, our personal abilities and our gifts, our time, all of those come from him and they are to be used for his purposes. Jesus told the story of a man who entrusted his resources to servants to invest on his behalf while he was away on a trip. And to one of those who failed to do that, the man upon his return said this, you wicked servant. You should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. One commentator said this, God invites us to be venture capitalists for the kingdom of God. This is not exclusively or even primarily about money. It's about having the holy boldness to do seven or even eight things to spread the gospel and then waiting for God's ship to come in. Some of the things that we attempt may fail, or they may at least seem to have failed at the time. 
Some of the ministries we start, for example, or the churches we plant, or the efforts we make to share the good news of the cross and the empty tomb, they may fail, or at least look like that. But we should never stop investing with the gospel in as many places as we can. Whenever we engage in kingdom enterprises, we offer the Holy Spirit something he can and often will use to save people's souls. Not everything we do for the Lord works out as we had planned. But consider how investing in lesser things works out. And then tell me which is the better investment. One preacher said it this way. If you draw your sense of value and fulfillment from your work, you need to understand that plants close and businesses fold. If you draw your sense of fulfillment in this life from your family, understand that some children rebel and whether they rebel or not, eventually they leave home. If you draw your sense of value and fulfillment from your physical condition, understand that disease creeps in and snatches life. If you draw your sense of value and fulfillment from money, understand that businesses fold and investments are washed away. If you draw your sense of value and fulfillment from your relationships, understand that people turn on you. But if you invest in the work of the Lord, there will always be a return, at least eventually, Absolutely guaranteed. And that's why at the end of his famous resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, where the Apostle Paul has laid out the truth of the resurrection and its implications, the very final verse, 57 verses are now summarized in this one verse, verse 58. My dear brothers and sisters, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know. That your labor in the Lord is not in vain. When you invest in the work of the Lord widely, some things will work out, others will not. But you will have the joy in the present of knowing that you're pleasing your master. And you will have confidence that in the future, if not now, it will be rewarded. So the Bible tells us to invest our lives. Because the return on that investment is worth it. It tells us to diversify because the return is unpredictable. And then thirdly, do something because anything can happen. Anything can happen, so by all means, do something. Some people, including many Christians, have a completely different attitude towards spiritual business than the one we've already described. They're so risk-averse that they keep waiting until conditions are perfect before they do the work that God is calling them to do. And sometimes they end up waiting forever. Verse 3. If clouds are full of water, they pour rain on the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there it will lie. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. One reason that people do not invest themselves for the Lord fully and widely, as verses 1 and 2 teach, is because there's always a better time. The present moment is not perfect, and so they wait. Verse 3 describes two things that we cannot control. When it rains and where a tree will fall. And these uncontrollable unknowns can then be excuses for inaction. If you keep waiting for the perfect time, friends, nothing gets done. So are you the person who says, you know, one of these days I'm going to get help for my procrastination problem. 
And you see it throughout life. Some people in their youth don't start work, don't start a career because they're not sure if they'll like the one they choose. So keep waiting, keep waiting. Some people don't start school because they're not sure they can pay for it. Keep waiting. Some people don't start ministry because they're not sure they'll be able to live up to it. So keep waiting and do nothing. Hear this, friends. If you look for an excuse to do nothing, you will always find it. So are you someone who's constantly waiting to know if the thing you're contemplating is the will of God? You know, I'm just trying to discern God's will for my life. Yikes, God wrote a book with a lot of stuff about his will in it. He tells you what we're supposed to be up to together, carrying out his mission through his church. Put your hand to something and do it. God is telling us. And if you're waiting to discern God's, God's will, this perfect thing for you to do, you probably have a false view of how we know the will of God. I don't have time to correct that for you in this sermon. But we have a book in the Resource Center. A big one, but a really good one. Called Decision Making and the Will of God. I encourage you to purchase that and read it. This problem is so acute that Pastor Kevin DeYoung has written another book on this subject of God's will. Aimed in particular at young people called Just Do Something. And believe it or not, friends, prayer can be an excuse for inaction and disobedience. You know, i got to pray about it. You don't have to pray about getting involved in the work of the Lord. You don't have to pray. Hear this. You don't have to pray about stuff God already told you to do. As a matter of fact, to pray about things God has already told you to do is an excuse for disobedience. Stop praying about it and do it. Many of us suffer from paralysis by analysis. So we're afraid to pull the trigger on a new project because of all the things that could possibly go wrong. I've been involved in two building projects in my ministry. One at our parent church that started this one, and then, of course, this building and its renovations and the addition to this room. And as we set out to decide, should we do this? Is this a wise thing for us to do? There were always people who were nervous Nellies through the whole thing. Just always mindful of all the things that could go wrong. Look, there were plenty of things that could go wrong. In both projects, some things did go wrong, but not much, actually, thank the Lord. But there are always things that, that could possibly, possibly go wrong. At our parent church, I had some people who were so nervous about doing this thing that we obviously needed to do. The church had two services in a tiny little building. We needed to build this thing. But they were so nervous about it that they gave me all the things that could go wrong. And what it really amounted to after we got done was, look, the economy could completely collapse. And then what are we going to do? I go, dude, if the economy completely collapses, what are we going to do in this building? How are you going to have a job? How are you going to have a business? Yes, of course that could happen. Anything can happen, but it cannot keep us from taking action. Weigh the options, gather your information, make a decision, and then give it to God. And he will then guide you through it. Hear this, no matter how it turns out, it may not turn out the way you planned. That's okay. Because I ventured something for God. 
And I based it on the best information I have. And now, Lord, we're going to move forward. Moving forward for you and giving it to you. So the Bible tells us, invest our lives because the return is worth it. Diversify because the return is unpredictable. Do something because, yeah, it's true, anything can happen. And then lastly, this passage tells us, fulfill your responsibility. Because God is in control. Verse 5. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. One has explained this verse this way. The Hebrew word translated wind here can mean wind, breath, or spirit. So is this referring to the wind, as the NIV says? That makes sense. The wind is unknowable. Throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon describes life as chasing after the wind. You can't grab it. You can't get hold of it. And our Lord Jesus used this play on words in his famous encounter with a religious leader, Nicodemus, in John chapter 3 to illustrate spiritual truth. Jesus said, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Wind and Spirit there are the same word. You cannot understand the new birth, Jesus is saying, because it's a spiritual birth. It's like trying to understand where the wind came from and where it's going. We don't know. We just know that it's blowing. Or in verse 5, does the word mean spirit? You don't know the way of the spirit. It could mean that as well. How does, how does dirt come together with spiritual life? Dirt. You see, that's the way the Bible describes us. We were made, remember that? Out of the dust of the ground. And from dust to dust we will go. But God took that dirt in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. And the Bible says, breathed into humanity the breath of life. The spirit. Giving him a human spirit that animated that dirt. But how does that happen? Whether it means wind or spirit, the point is that we are limited in our understanding. And the psalmist famously wondered at the mysteries of the human person and its amazing design by God in Psalm 139. Where he said, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and I'm wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. You, your eyes saw my unformed body. And though he was unformed in the womb, he says, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So, okay, there are things beyond our control and many things we do not know. Then what do we do about all this uncertainty? In the midst of all of that, I'm supposed to obey God. I'm supposed to invest. I'm supposed to diversify. I'm supposed to do something. And yet there's so many things I don't know. In the midst of that, what do I do? Verse 6. Sow. Sow your seed in the morning. And at the evening, let your hands not be idle. One has explained it this way. It says here, 
to work in the morning and in the evening. It's a poetic figure of speech that's called a merism. A merism is when you take two extremes, in this case, morning and evening, as a way to describe everything in between. So we could paraphrase it this way. Sow your seed and do not be idle at any time. Or to state it positively, work at all times. The New Testament says it this way in Ephesians chapter 5, redeem the time or make the most of every opportunity. It's saying that time is a precious commodity, so buy it back, redeem it from things that are less noble. We're stewards, we're managers of time, and we're to use it for the Lord wisely. It's telling us to lay the best plans that we possibly can, make the wisest decisions we can, do the best job we can at all times. And then having done that, leave it to God. We don't know the outcome, so leave it in the hands of the one who does. That's why the end of verse 6 says this. For you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. You don't know. Keep sowing. Keep plowing. Keep working. Keep serving. And then you give this to the hands of God. Sow your seed. Don't let your hands be idle. Things may not turn out the way you would plan. They may, there may be sorrow attached to the things we do. Things may not always be the way we originally wanted them. We wouldn't, none of us, choose for ourselves sorrow and weeping. But God is at work and that should bring us joy even in the midst of our tears. Some of you know who Ron Hamilton is. He's a songwriter. He had uh, a disease in his eye that caused him to have that eye removed. And so he has a patch over that eye for many, many decades now. He used that to become Patch the Pirate, some of you know, for kids who that is. So he decided, I need to use this somehow for God. He wrote a song in the midst, though, of all of that that was going on with the loss of his eye. And in that song, he said, God never moves without purpose or plan. When trying his servants or molding a man. Give thanks to the Lord, though your trials seem long. In darkness, he giveth a song. Oh, rejoice in the Lord. He makes no mistakes. He knoweth the end of each path that I take. And when I am tried and purified, I shall come forth as gold. So friends, we plan for the future as wisely as we know how. We're to be adventurous, we're to step out, we're to balance what we do with appropriate caution. Do the very best we can, acknowledging the uncertainty of the future, but don't let that uncertainty deter us from action. And in the end result, recognize that God is in control of all of it and place it in his hands as we're diligent in our work. That's what the life of faith is all about. Now we're almost done. But all of us have been faithless in some aspects of our lives. As we examine the various roles that God has called us to fulfill, we see there's work that needs to be done, commitments that need to be made. So right now, as you consider the adventure of a life of faith, you need to make that or those commitments. What is it that God would have you to do or be in your home, in your school, in your workplace, here at the church? What is it that you've been putting off waiting for the perfect time? 
The perfect time is now. To do all that you can, be all that you can be for God, and then leave the uncertainties to him. And friends, when you do that, you don't know how it's going to turn out, the end of verse 6 says. You leave that to God. You trust God to bring fruit in his time and in his way. But let me just give you a story that illustrates the fact that you never know when your efforts are going to bear fruit. Luke Short was converted to Christ at the tender age of 103. Short was sitting under a hedge in Virginia when he happened to remember a sermon he had once heard preached by the famous Puritan John Flavel. As he recalled the sermon, Short asked God to forgive his sins right then and there through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He lived for three more years, and when he died, the following words were inscribed on his tombstone. Here lies a babe in grace, aged three years, who died according to nature, aged 106. But here's the remarkable part of that story. The sermon that old Mr. Short remembered had been preached 85 years earlier back in England. Nearly a century had passed between the sermon and his conversion. Or to put it another way, between the sowing and the reaping. You never know how your work for the Lord is going to bear fruit. Keep plowing. Keep sowing. So your take-home truth is, give your life for Christ. Notice, we often say give your life to Christ. That's all good. But I'm talking about giving your life and everything you do in it for Christ. It's all about Christ. It's all for Christ. And then really live both now in the present and forever. Let's ask God to help us. Father, thank you for bringing us together. To consider these truths from your wise servant Solomon. Lord, help me, help us to be attentive hearers, doers of the word and not hearers only, not people who look into the mirror of scripture and walk away unchanged. Help us, Lord, to apply what we've talked about today as we've talked about it in our lives, in the various stations that you've assigned to us. And then, Lord, we commit it to you, all of it. We can't make it happen. We can't cause the results in any of our tasks. You know them before we do them. We entrust them to you because we completely trust you. Bring glory to yourself through our lives as we obey you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.